All right, so we are going to continue our series in the book of Ephesians. We started it last week, and so this morning we're going to look at the second half of chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. So Greg read our passage for this morning, so you want to keep your finger there. Um, but as we get started, <clears throat> I'm going to share a secret with you all. Okay? So I have a secret proprietary recipe um, for a fairly healthy chocolate shake. It is really good. So, you know, see everybody scramble for their pen, take notes, how, how important this is. Um, I like to make it sometimes after I've gone on a run, which doesn't happen as often as it should. Um, I'm going to go ahead and make this public. It might go viral. Everyone could be beating down my door for interviews on their foodie podcast. I know it might happen, but here it, here it goes. Okay, so a cup of ice, whole milk, Okay, none of that skim milk, water. Um, big heaping tablespoon of Nesquik. Okay, it's not totally healthy, um, but after a run, it's healthy, you know, or you've kind of earned it. Another big healthy tablespoon, heaping tablespoon of Trader Joe's peanut butter, small banana, and a small handful of semi-sweet chocolate chips or Doc dark chocolate chunks, you know, depending on your preference. You blend it, drink it, okay? So when I make it, inevitably, there is a child or two that says, oh, I want some. Would you make me one? Can you make me a milkshake? Uh, most prefer it, or some of them prefer it without the peanut butter, which is part of the secret sauce, you know, which means I don't have to share it as much. Um, okay, anyway. I just shared my secret proprietary milkshake recipe. But only me, at this point, and only my wife and kids, know this recipe by experience. They know what it tastes like. So though I wouldn't be surprised if a few of you know it by experience, although I'm not going to give you the measurements. I don't really know them, because I just kind of do it by feel every time. Anyway, why did I tell you that? Why did I start off that way? What does that have to do with Ephesians? 1, 15 to 23. Well, Ephesians starts out in verses 3 to 14, this big long sentence that Paul writes. He is blessing God for how God has blessed us, his people, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then there's another big long sentence, and it's a prayer. That's what we're looking at this morning. He prays for the Ephesians after he blesses God for all his grace in the lives of the Ephesians and in his life. So why does he pray for them? Well, it's because he knows the difference and that there is a difference between knowing about something and knowing something, as in experiencing something. So Jonathan Edwards said it well when he said this, when he wrote this a few hundred years ago. There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet or that my milkshake is tasty but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste 
of honey in his mind. If you've never tasted honey, if you've never experienced honey, you will only know maybe some words, descriptive words, but you won't have experienced it. So there's a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. There is a wide difference between mere speculative, rational, judging a thing to be excellent and having a sense of its sweetness and beauty. He uses the word sense on purpose and multiple times because he's talking about spiritual senses, like spiritual taste buds. Taste and see that God is good, not just learn things propositionally, conceptually about God, although that's important. So the believers in Ephesus knew God. They knew the blessings that were theirs in Christ. But they, like we, were also prone to spiritual dullness and insensitivity to the glory of God's grace. They needed to know what they knew. They needed to experience what they knew to be true. And so do we. So we can't be content to simply know about God. We need to know God. We can't be content simply to know about the blessings that are ours in three, one, to four, or 1, 3 to 14. We need to taste and see that those blessings are good and sweet and wonderful. And when we do, when we do experience that taste those things. And the more that we do, the more that we will follow Paul in blessing God for how he has so richly blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We will end up being a people. We will be to the praise of his glorious grace. So this passage is a call to go after experiential knowledge of God and of his grace, not just intellectual knowledge. And it's also a call to love others by praying that they would know God in the same way, know his grace in the same way, experientially, not just intellectually. So let's not be satisfied with just concepts. We want reality, don't we? We want to encounter God personally, know him personally. So let's just pray here briefly again, and then we'll dive into Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. Oh God, just like Isaiah knew about your holiness and your glory, and yet when you showed up and revealed yourself to him in the way recorded in Isaiah 6, it shook him to the core and was massively transformative. We pray that we would experience the same kind of reality, that we would not just know and hear, even this morning, concepts and propositions, but that we would encounter you, the living God. 
we can't just make that happen. We are dependent on you. Please, by your Spirit, would you meet with us and move among us in a powerful way that we might know you, that we might know the glory of your grace, that you might, by your Spirit, sensitize and make yourself known to our senses spiritually, that we would see your glory, that we would hear your voice, that we would taste and see that you are good, that we would not be dull and insensitive, that our hearts would be soft and receptive and sensitive and not calloused and dull and deadened. So please come, Lord, and have your way and work among us and cause us to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there is an outline like Tyler mentioned um, on the live stream page. You can pull that up or you can follow along. The points will be on the screen here behind me. So first off, um, what is Paul praying for here? So let's look at point number one, verses 15 to 18, beginning of verse 18. So Paul writes, for this reason, and he's pointing back to verses 3 to 14, especially 13 and 14, which makes clear that these blessings apply to the readers you also, when you heard the word of truth, believed and were sealed. So for this reason, because it became yours, and because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We could just stop right there. And meditate on that. <laughs> that phrase is not used anywhere else. Just kind of a description, uh, a name of God, the Father of glory, which speaks of his love and his involvement and yet also his greatness. So it's his goodness and his greatness right here. Don't you want to know that? Not just know about the Father of glory, but know the glory of your Father in all of his love and care. So I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So these are Christians. They've come to faith in Jesus. They've trusted in Jesus. They've turned from their sins, trusted in Jesus. Chapter 2 says they've been made alive together with Christ because we're all born just rebellious and bent. We're dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to be made alive, born again. So that's happened to these Christians, to these people. That's why they're Christians. So there's good reason to believe that they're the real thing, right? Their faith is evident. Their love is evident. Verse 15 
So Paul gives thanks because God's done this. He's done a work in Ephesus. He's changed people. He's transformed them, made them his own. And now he prays for them because they need the Spirit of God. Only by the Spirit of God will they really know experientially God in Christ. We need the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. So, 2 Corinthians 4 kind of tells the story in brief summary as far as what we need to have happen at conversion and then also ongoing. Okay, so look, um, it'll be up here on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says, The God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as Paul and his band of um, servants preach the gospel, they don't preach themselves. They don't want people to just follow them, them, you know, cult of personality. They want the power of the gospel to change these people. They preach Jesus Christ as Lord. We're just your servants for Jesus' sake. And just as God, by his omnipotently powerful word, said, let there be light, and there was creation. When the gospel comes in power, God says, let there be new creation. And people who were dead in sin wake up and come alive. And they see, they have new eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So this sight, the enlightening of the eyes of our hearts, that spiritual sight is not just a once and done at conversion. We need the Spirit's help to continue to see the glory of God in Christ and be changed and transformed, conformed to the image of Christ. So we see Jesus, we admire him, we love him, and we are slowly, one degree of glory to the next, conformed to his character, like it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Look at it there. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we need the Spirit's help to really see, have eyes to see, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, just step by step. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the Spirit of wisdom and revelation enables us to see Jesus and to see all of the grace that's ours in Him. So, <clears throat> don't you want to know God more? Don't you want to know him better? Don't you want to know him experientially, not just more facts in your head? Like, it's heaven to know God, isn't it? So Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So to know God is to bring a little more heaven to earth into our lives, into our hearts and into our lives. So to bring concepts to reality, 
facts to experience, to not just know about God, but to know God, to taste and see that the Lord is good. If that's going to happen, we need the Spirit. There is a massive difference between, listen, like, at a very practical level, the way you read the Bible on a daily basis or the way that you engage in a Sunday school class, discipleship curriculum, or the way that you even listen on a Sunday morning or the way I preach on a Sunday morning. There's a massive difference between intellectual stimulation and growth in faith. It's not that we check our brains at the door, but it doesn't stop with just intellectual stimulation. It needs to feed our faith. So if you get more excited about finding some new cultural or historical detail that you never knew about, then savoring the sweetness of an attribute of God or a blessing that's yours in Christ, if you, if you are more excited or more inclined to find the former rather than pursuing the latter, you may need to reevaluate what you're after when you come to the Bible. Again, we, we need to know the Bible as best we can. We want to know all about God's world and His ways and everything. But we really want to know God, not just Bible trivia. So this is also a word for our teachers. We don't want to try to impress people with things that we've found that they've never heard before. We're not trying to just get them excited about the minutia that we're curious about. If there are no soul-stirring answers to the question, so what? Then maybe we need to leave that portion out. <laughs> so, what does the spirit of wisdom and revelation help us know? Three things, okay? Look at verse 18. That we may know, you see them there, what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So we'll look at each of those in turn. First, the hope of his calling. Okay, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So the hope of the gospel, the hope that the Bible points to, is a sure hope. Okay, in English, the term hope, whether it's used as a noun or as a verb, has uncertainty built right into it, right? I hope it doesn't snow tomorrow. Or the kids, I hope it does snow tomorrow. I don't know. I hope. Or there is hope that the restrictions will ease by this summer. You see, there's uncertainty built in, unfortunately. So that's not what the Bible's hope is like. It is sure and certain. So the living hope, like for instance, that Peter talks about, that is ours in Christ is rock solid and sure. The blessed hope of glory, of resurrection and glorification and living in the new heavens and the new earth with God face to face, like beautiful, perfect society, all things made new, everything set to rights. That is sure and certain. It's as certain as Jesus is alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father. But that doesn't mean that your confidence, your hope, your subjective hope in that hope is always rock solid. 
And actually, the Bible talks about both. It talks about hope as that objective reality out there, and it also talks about our hoping. That's a subjective experience. It can be shaky. It can be solid. So our confidence in that solid hope can be distorted. It can be weak. Our confidence, to use a different word, a synonym, can be shaky, right? We know that. So, we need the Spirit of God to help our subjective sense of the sureness and the certainty of the Christian hope so that our hope is solid and unshakable. So, another, just for instance, so you understand what I'm saying here. Do you believe Romans 8.18? Okay, in case you don't know that one off by heart. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is absolutely rock solid in its truth and reliability. But do you always feel like that's true? Especially when you are going through really severe suffering. You might be saying things like, Lord, I, how could you allow something like this hap to happen to someone you love? So you can see why we need to know internally, experientially, subjectively the hope of our calling. Our hope needs to be sure of the hope. We don't need to just know about it. Here's the facts, bullet points. We need to experientially know that hope. So Alex actually pointed my attention to a thing that happened um, like 70 years ago or so that illustrates the point. So in 1952, a lady named Florence Chadwick attempted to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island. Well, I think it was she started at the, I don't know where she started. 26 miles between Catalina Island and the California coastline, which is near LA. If you look on a map, you see where Catalina Island is. So she had some small boats flanking her that were with her to watch for sharks and in case there was an emergency. And after swimming for about 15 hours, which I totally cannot compute with, um, there's a thick fog that set in and she started to doubt that she could make it. But I think part of these things, like if you're going to try to break a record or do something, they can't tell you how much further you've got. So she swam for another hour after feeling that way. But finally, she just said, I, I'm, I'm done. You've got to pull me out. So she wasn't able to see the coastline of Catalina Island due to the fog. And yet, once she got in the boat, she learned that she was only one mile from the island. So she knew the shore was there, right? She knew it was there. It didn't disappear. Island didn't just go sinking down into the, the ocean. But she didn't know it couldn't perceive it because of the fog. And by the way, she did try again two months later. The same fog settled in, but she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind, and she made it. So, do you see, we need the Spirit's help when the fog rolls in, as it were, so that we know what we can't always see, right? or that we can only see by the eyes of faith and by hoping in God and in His promises. 
So that's the first thing we need to know. The second is the riches of his glorious inheritance. We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know what are the riches of, watch it, his glorious inheritance in the saints. Wouldn't you expect this to say the riches of our glorious inheritance? That's what I would expect, but that's not what it says. And I touched on this last week, but just because this could be somewhat foreign to us, unfortunately, this theme is more prevalent in the Bible than you may think. We, again, I, I mentioned two verses last week, but I'm going to show you some more so that you see how prevalent this theme is in the Bible. If you are in Christ, you are God's treasured possession. You are actually God's inheritance. Sounds weird, doesn't it? That's who you are. So, two places last week. I'll show a few more this week. Exodus 19.4. It's how God speaks about his covenant people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Deuteronomy 4.20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Psalm 33, 12. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen to be his special possession. Malachi 3, 16, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Two more. Titus 2, 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I just gave you a bunch of facts, a bunch of data, okay? That, those are true statements. But we need the Spirit of God to work them down into our hearts so that the sweetness, the wonder of this weighs on us, impacts us, encourages us like it ought to. This is how God views his children. Just let that sink in. Or maybe I should say, no, pray that it will sink in. Right? We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know, to experience the glory of this grace. You, if you're in Christ, you are precious and valuable 
to God. Obviously so much so that he's willing for the infinitely precious blood of his infinitely worthy son to be shed to make you his own. We are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Isn't that crazy? Like, isn't that, it sounds arrogant and presumptuous. Like, how could that describe us? I mean, look around. And you can look at me, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not like, well, yeah, look around. We are messy, prone to wander, slow to learn, sheep. We stink. We're foolish. We're oftentimes petty and pathetic, aren't we? I mean, we might just be tempted to laugh at the dissonance. We are the riches of his glorious inheritance. But time out, like think of who we are and what we will be. We sung of it, absent from flesh, you know, what's coming. So we've all borne the image of the first Adam, right? We're going to bear fully the image of the second Adam. We're going to be fully glorified, fully changed. We will be holy and blameless before Him. Like it says in chapter 1, chose us in Him. Blameless in holiness. So, do you see why we need to know this? Like, isn't this important when you, this week, fail again? When you yield to that sin that's beset you over and over again and you fail again and you feel like a failure and you feel like God must be sick about or sick of you about now, that he's had enough, just tired of you, do you think it might be important to know that, oh man, this is hard to believe, but I didn't come into this relationship because of my worthiness and this covenantal love is incredible. I can come right to my Father who loves me, who has called me His own, who delights to call me His own, and I can confess my sin, and He is going to be faithful and just to forgive and cleanse me. I'm His. Or when you're criticized or persecuted or stabbed in the back or ignored or lonely or betrayed, do you think it's important to know that God is not just kind of, you know, he's stuck with us because of this covenant? You know, he just kind of plugs his nose whenever he has to come and get us out of a scrape. No, he treasures his people. He treasures you. You are his. He is yours. And he's happy about that. Like, we need the Spirit to help us really know that. So we need to know by the Spirit the hope of His calling. We need to know the riches of His inheritance. And now third, we need to know the immeasurable greatness of His power. Verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? So we can see that the emphasis is on this one, right? Because he goes on to explain all the way down to verse 23. Why do you think there was such an emphasis on power? Well, power was really important in Ephesus. It's kind of a cultural fascination and a value. In fact, turn back to Acts 19. I alluded to this last week, but flip to uh, Acts 19. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on 928. And look at verse 11. 
God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is in Ephesus. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and, the, and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Like, wow, this name is really powerful. We should use it. Saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom, all the, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was power encounters. People were pursuing power through magic and the occult, but the power of God through Christ and by the Spirit was even mightier. So, you can also see why chapter 6 of Ephesians is so fitting. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, and there's spiritual warfare. We'll get to that, okay? So, <clears throat> Paul makes it clear that this is not power aimed at impressing people. Jesus didn't use His power that way while on earth. It's his power toward us who believe. So not just a general abstract you know, concept of omnipotence. He doesn't even refer to creation. So obviously God used his power in mighty ways in creation, but he's going to talk about the power in terms of the power of the resurrection. Okay, So raising Jesus from the dead. And then he goes on in chapter 2. This is tied to chapter 2 tightly to show that that same power is what raised us from the dead. So it raised Jesus from the dead. It raised us from the dead. You've been made alive together with Christ. You were dead in your sins. You were made alive together in Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead displays the, this immeasurable power, and the resurrection of Christians is a display of the resurrection power of God. So we need to know this power that's at work on our behalf and in us. So, point number three, the resurrection power of God. Let's look at how Paul goes on in verses 19 to 23, at least briefly here. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So listen, verses 20 to 23 is not just an analogy. It is the exercise of the power, the mighty work that has brought us into the experience of the immeasurable greatness of his power. So the resurrection of Jesus is that immeasurable power at work. 
But it's also the guarantee of that work in us to raise us from the dead. So Jesus, in a sense, is the beginning of the new creation, God making all things new. And we are the beginning of the new creation. You are new creature, new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. So the new creation's already begun with the resurrection of Jesus and with the resurrection of his people. So the old age passing away, the new day is dawning. So here's the thing. It's, it's really easy to doubt the working of his power in us, toward us. It's easier to, easier to wonder and kind of look at our lives and almost scoff like, yeah, right, immeasurably great power, huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. Look at me. Pretty easy to kind of doubt with like a defeated discouragement. Doesn't seem to square with our experience. You know, I prayed and prayed and nothing seemed to happen. Struggle and struggle and it always seems to be one step forward, two steps back. Like, we need to know this power, right? It sure is easy to doubt it. So what do we make of all this? Well, we need to know that the power is in God, not in us. The text says the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. The text does not say help them know how strong they really are. You've got this, Ephesians. You know, you're enough. You're powerful. No. We are weak, but He is strong. And even our weak faith, rightly placed in a mighty Savior, will still work wonders in our lives because it's His work. So imagine two fathers the night of the Exodus. Okay, they both applied the blood over the doorposts. One was anxious and up all night, tossing and turning, fearful for the life of his firstborn. The other slept soundly, confident in God's promise. Which one's son was dead in the morning? You can go ahead and try to answer that one. Louder. Neither. Neither. <laughs> yes. They both believed and responded in faith. So which of those fathers do you want to live like, though? You can see why this prayer and the answer to this prayer is so important. So I, I told another illustration some years ago. I couldn't find it, but it's basically this. Picture a man creeping across a frozen lake. He's laid out. He's crawling because he's afraid that, you know, he doesn't know how thick the ice is, and, you know, he's trying to distribute his weight. He's inching along. All of a sudden, he hears this terrible racket behind him. It's a guy in a carriage drawn by two horses, and the horses are at full gallop, and the driver's just loving it. As he passes the guy crawling on the ground, he's like, yee-haw, you know, just, just going across the... Now, if that ice is thin, it doesn't matter how confident you are, right? Dude's going down, horses and all. And the guy crawling on his belly is, is the smart one. But if that ice is three feet thick... And that guy is needlessly anxious and he's moving along at a painfully slow pace when he could be walking peacefully and enjoying the fresh air. So the ice is thick, brothers and sisters. Our God is strong. We can straighten our back. We can strengthen the knees that are weak and find a bit of a spring in our step and perhaps even start whistling a little bit. Better yet, we can sing the praises. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ because of this immeasurable power, His power at work in us who believe. 
So listen, could Johnny Erickson Tata laugh at this language, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us and believe? Look at me. Quadriplegic. Kind of God would allow that to happen. No, she knows God. And she knows his ways. And we, if you're familiar with her story, know how strong she is through her strength born of weakness. You see why we need to know? We need, we need the spirit of wisdom and revelation because God's ways aren't our ways. We need to be shaped by the spirit of God, not the spirit of the age when it comes to power. Because God's power is oftentimes worked through weakness. So precisely because of her weakness is she now strong. And strong in a way that, you know, maybe our world doesn't value or our world fears and, and runs away from. So we need to know what we know, don't we? Have you tasted and seen that our living hope is good? Have you experienced the sweetness and security that comes from knowing that you're God's treasured possession? Have you felt the might of God's resurrection power at work in your life? God wants to give his spirit that we might know these things. So the Spirit can tune our spiritual taste buds so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. He can remove the calluses from our hearts so that we're not dull and insensitive to glorious realities that are ours. He can remove the blinders from our eyes. He can sharpen our spiritual vision. He can take the wax out of our ears, as it were, so that we can really hear God's voice. He can sensitize our spiritual senses so that the blessings of 3, 1 to 14, or 3, 1, 3 to 14 are glorious and sweet to us. And so that we, by His Spirit, will taste and see that He's good. That His grace is glorious so that we might be to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray and then we're going to sing God is for us to close. Dear Father of glory and God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you please give us your spirit, your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.